Well, this morning we continue our series through the book of Exodus. And this week we finished looking at the passage in Exodus, which is known as the book of the covenant. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me to Exodus chapter 20, which can be found on page 61 of the Bibles there in front of you. And you are going to want to open your Bibles and look there because we got a lot to cover. So I might just be referencing some passages or telling you to skim them while I describe them. So you definitely want to have your Bibles open. Exodus is all about God forming a people for himself, a people who display his glory among the nations. And in the first 18 chapters of Exodus, we saw that God was drawing his people out of slavery under Egypt. And now we see him giving his people his law, right? They're supposed to be a holy nation as he is holy. And so he gives them the holy law. Last week, we saw that God is determined to take this Hebrew people as his treasured possession, and they have a unique use, a special use to display his character among the nations. And he reminds, the, he reminds Israel of the fact that he has claimed them. He goes and he meets them on Mount Sinai. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then this week we see that other God-given laws, we look at those that they really flow out of the Ten Commandments as they are applied to Israel's particular situation in that particular time. So as God gives his covenant law, we have the opportunity once again to focus on what God himself cares about. As he gathers his holy nation, his holy people, gives them his holy law, what exactly is he going to tell them? What are his concerns? What does he care about? You can learn a whole lot about uh, a government and a people and especially a God by looking actually at the laws. And this is what we do today. First, a little bit of background on the Book of the Covenant. This section, as I mentioned already, this is called the Book of the Covenant. Now, some people, they actually attach the Ten Commandments, and, and they, they include that part of the Book of the Covenant, regardless of the ways in which scholars might work it out. Uh, nevertheless, it is called the Book of the Covenant. And this uh, today's sermon is all about case laws. If there are any lawyers here, you know that case law, what that is, is these are laws that pertain to people in a particular situation. Uh, and lest you think that this is a bit like opening the law books of America, and we are here expositing this and getting so excited about these things, no, that's not what we ought to do. Although maybe some of you guys are do get excited to look at case laws. Uh, this case law, once again, it reveals the character of God. You can learn a lot about a people, about a God, the God, by looking at what he tells us in his law. Now, if the Ten Commandments are to abide forever, which they are, there, there is morality that undergirds the Ten Commandments here. The, this book of the covenant here is not to abide forever. This is a particular situation here. So you're going to hear a lot of things that don't apply to the church today, and you can't apply it so flatly. So you have the, the Ten Commandments, the morality that's under, that undergirds those things, and those very commandments itself uh, apply over today with certain nuances that come uh, clear in the New Testament. So keep that in mind. The, the, what we're going to read here today is not binding on God's people, the church today. So as we examine some of these case laws, let's, uh, let's observe what God cares about. Let's observe what God cares about. First, we see that God cares about how his people worship. How his people worship. Just as the Ten Commandments begin with God declaring his sovereignty to Moses and to Israel, so the section begins the exact same way, actually. Declaring his sovereignty as the Lord of heaven. Look there at verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves. They have talked with you 
from heaven. In the section immediately before, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, God came down to meet with his people. He came to meet Moses in a cloud, in smoke, in fire, in thunder, in lightning. And there are crazy sounds, but most importantly, God's, he, God reveals himself with his voice. He speaks to the people and he gives the people the Ten Commandments. So the people are freaked out because of all, of all the, the stuff that's going on physically. And uh, they think that God is coming to destroy them. But Moses, he steps in as God's appointed mediator for the people. And he says, no, no, God has not come to destroy you. He wants you to be a holy nation. That's why he's doing all of these things for you. You know, if I were part of the group, and I'm sure if you were part of the group, you would say, okay, you know, God definitely has my attention. But it isn't mere attention that God desires. God is after commitment. He's after worship. He's after relationship. As it says in the previous chapter that God is, of this chapter, God is a jealous God. And he has every right to be. As his people were tempted to follow other gods that in fact did not exist. Right? Psalm, 40, Psalm 46 says, uh, uh, besides me there is no other. So, you know, in relation to this jealousy, uh, if you were a parent, imagine yourself being a parent. Would you not be jealous for your children's love, their obedience, and their welfare if they pushed you and your wisdom aside and gave glory and allegiance and submission and submitted themselves to fictional characters? If they're worshiping the god of Paw Patrol, <laughs> Taylor Swift, Kanye West. Every other functional God you can think of, money, sex, power, drugs. I mean, what would happen in your heart if you saw them declaring allegiance to these fictional gods as if they were the ones who carried them from the womb, gave them birth, cared for them night and day, fed them, bathed them, protected them? It is absolutely absurd. Just imagine your children bowing down to Paw Patrol. It's absolutely absurd. Well, that's an absurdity that we know all too well, isn't it? As we ourselves follow our own heart idols, so God is jealous, wanting to protect us from all the things that fail us and redirect us to all the things that is, namely God, Jesus Christ, who can actually deliver. So for the Israelites, God intervenes to help a sinful people tempted to give allegiance and glory to false gods. And so he says there in verse 23, this is, you know, this is monotheism here. One God, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Now we know that the Israelites are going to fail miserably, just a few chapters. But this is the law that God gives them. He intervenes to help them who are so tempted to go away and give their allegiance to false gods. As God was making his people into a holy nation with a special use of displaying his glory among the nations... He tells them that their worship had to be distinct from the surrounding nations. They are to be distinct, holy, set apart, unique. And this distinction of his people is what drives the verses that follow. Look there in verse 25. He says, you know, skim that verse. Don't carve an altar. If you have an altar, I want you to have altar. God says everywhere you go, I want you to build an altar. And uh, it's supposed to be of just natural stone or even dirt. He says don't take a hammer and a chisel to the altar. And basically he's trying to say, uh, look, hammer and a chisel goes to, to gods, right? I don't even want your altar to draw you towards that type of temptation where you're bowing down as if you could take ownership of that thing. That's what it seems to be there. 
Uh, he says that the altar is to be plain, and God's going to bless them as they worship God. And they're also, also supposed to be sexually pure. Look there at verse 26. Now, this might seem really strange. Do not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Uh, we know later on that God actually prescribes uh, a certain type of undergarments for priests. But, you know, here the point isn't don't build steps on the altar. The point is really be distinct from all the other nations. So what God seems to be getting out here was the fact that uh, they were to be distinct in relation to the Canaanites' worship. They actually, around their altars, encouraged promiscuity. So they would sleep around at the altar as a way to manipulate their own gods to giving them, blessing them with children or blessing them with, uh, let's say, uh, children uh, of their own animals. So they're trying to manipulate this god to make them into a nation. God says, no, don't go up onto the altar by steps so that your nakedness may be exposed on it. That is, you not encourage sexual immorality in the worship of false gods. No, he says God, says God is pure. Not only that, though, but God has this. He had promised Abraham that he was going to make his people into a nation. So he says, look, you don't need to manipulate something uh, by sleeping around to make the nation great. I'm going to make the nation great myself. If you flip over to 23.19, you get this somewhat strange verse, at least in our modern eyes. 23.19 also has to do with uh, worship being distinct. It says, the best of your first fruits of the ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, like... If you're really wondering, like, what in the world does that have to do with us? You can't apply that flatly and therefore say, no, that's not how we're supposed to prepare the goats. Actually, he's getting at, again, Canaanite worship, which would do that very thing. Here, they're supposed to be distinct from the nations around them. Now, okay, that's Israelite case law. We think about today, we live far after the ancient Israelites. We don't have altars here. But God still desires that we to be distinct from the world. We know this from 1 Peter that we too, the church, is a holy nation. Distinct. We are to be holy as God is holy. And we are to be distinct in our worship, set apart in our worship. So what this means is that we actually need to be careful in mixing the world's religion with Christian practices. So some of you guys come from families that might say that they are Christian, but at the same time they're going to go to the witch doctor. At the same time, they're going to go to the fortune teller. At the same time, they're going to consult the stars. At the same time, they're going to consult all sorts of other things. But actually, mixing the world's ways with God's ways reveals that the people of God don't follow God alone. They aren't really trusting God alone and His wisdom. You know, the main way that we can remain distinct, or how is it that we know what to include or not include, or whether or not including is even bad, is we go to his word. We go to the Bible. And from the word, we determine, okay, what is it that God has commanded us to do, and what is a logical implication of these commands, and then how do we implement them? So, for example, if one of you guys says, well, you know what we should do is we should bring in fire-breathing jugglers to worship. And this will be a spectacular display. And somehow we can worship. The question is, how do we know that God will be pleased with these particular things? Well, we go to the word of God. What does the word of God tell us to do? What are the logical implications thereof? And uh, there, based on God's norm, then we implement the commands of Scripture. In the Bible, we have everything we need for life and doctrine. It is sufficient. Now, by sufficient, I don't mean that it speaks about how, what we are to do when we are addicted to social media. Right? That, that doesn't, that's not addressed here. But the word of God is sufficient to address those very things. 
of addiction. Because he talks about giving our allegiances to stuff of the world when we should really be giving it to God. So then we just apply that to today's situation. In that sense, it is sufficient, wholly sufficient to help us understand the world around us and especially how we are to worship as a body. So if you, you look at the uh, church bulletin, right, you see here that this thing is not just random. You know, we don't start our worship service with a call to worship just randomly. No, we go back to the beginning where God speaks and everything is created and then people are responding to that. Well, so we're going to do that here. So AJ led us in this call to worship, Philippians 1, 2, grace and peace to you. And uh, so God speaks and then we respond through worship. We read a scripture and we respond in prayer. We respond in singing. We hear the word of God. We're going to respond. And then uh, we have here uh, what God has called us to do in terms of the Lord's Supper. So all these things, the very things, the elements that we do here in service, we're going to be based right in the Bible. We don't have altar calls. Now, I might say to somebody, I might say to you guys, non-Christians who might be visiting, you know, come talk to me at the back. I'd be very happy to talk to you about who Jesus is and actually calling you to repent and believe and maybe even pray for you. But I'm not going to ask people to, to raise their hand if you want to receive Jesus because I don't want to encourage you guys to associate raising a hand or walking an aisle with becoming a Christian. There's so many other things that need to be considered when one becomes a Christian. You will know a tree by its fruit. First John says, if you walk in darkness but have fellowship with the light, you lie. So then actually, oh, we actually need to examine the lives of the people who want to come and join the church, which is, which is what Jesus does. And that's what the New Testament encourages people to do. So we're not going to be, uh, you know, in the Bible there is no altar call. There's definitely, definitely a call to repentance. And hopefully, Lord willing, you will hear that today. A call to repent and believe. So all that to say, we have the word of God where he tells us how we are to live and how we are to worship. Here God's commanding Israel to be distinct. We too are to be distinct. How do we know what we are to do? Well, we go to the Bible. In our services, we preach the Bible as one has said, we read the Bible, we sing the Bible, that is the Bible's contents, we pray the Bible, so praying God's words back to him, and we even see the truths of the Bible and the gospel, as in baptism and then the Lord's Supper. Preach the Bible, read the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, and even see the truths of the Bible. Well, not only does God care about how his people worship, God cares about showing compassion to the needy. God cares about showing compassion to the needy. This is the second thing in our list here. Now, there are various categories for needy. But we start first with Israel's indentured servants. By the way, this, this uh, point number two is going to take up a huge part of the sermon. Um, so don't worry if you know we're going 30 minutes and we're still on point number two. Uh, this has to do with slavery. And so there's a lot of stuff that needs to be explained. We need to understand this well. But there are a number of uh, case laws concerning Israelites' slavery. So first we're looking at slavery, we're going to look at other categories, but now we're looking at slavery. And we're going to look generally at these case laws and draw uh, particulars here. First, know that slavery, as scholars are, will happily acknowledge, is actually not a good English translation. The better word here would be bonded worker or indentured servant. Now, the world that ancient Israel lived in was a very, very difficult one and should inform the ways in which we think about slavery back then. Uh, historians say that slavery, or in terms of, uh, let's say, a population, 80% of the population were slaves in Egypt, let's say, which is where Israel came out of. 80%. So if you reserve, let's say, four rows here, the rest of you guys would be in slavery. Slavery. Uh, that's eight out of ten people. Tremendous. So their economy functioned on 
this indentured servitude here. Now, the Israelite slavery condoned here in Exodus is very different than the slavery that went on in the surrounding nations. So think of Egypt, Egypt, Egypt slavery described in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, they ruled over the people harshly and bitterly. And that was their intention. That's not to be Israelite, Israelite slavery here. Think about, uh, you know, as we come to this discussion, we come with American ears. The slavery argued for by many uh, back then, you, you know, it, we think of slave ships. We think of metal neck collars. We think of chains and brutality. We think of multiple foot-long scars on the backs of African Americans and others. That slavery is not to be Israel's slave. You think about it, how would a holy nation of God, how would they be a holy nation of God if they went and did the exact same thing that God condemned and went on to judge the Israelites for? They would not be a holy nation. Slavery in Israel, it's very important to, to, to know this, was actually designed to protect and provide shelter for the needy and the lowly. Now again, it's hard to imagine that, but we do need to set aside the culture in which we come from and understand that. So think about it, you know, if you are poor and you can't afford anything, you can't afford to live, what do you do? You could today, for example, go out and walk the streets or even work the streets. Or another way that you could get into slavery is if you had a lot of debt. Well, if you had a lot of debt, what do you do? How do you pay it off? Uh, then you could actually go into slavery to work it off. You become an indentured servant to work it off. You go into slavery in order to survive. Nowadays, let's say if you are too poor, once again, you go and steal, you go and work the streets, you walk the streets. Or if you're in debt, what do you do? If you are in debt, you can file bankers, bankruptcy. But today, in today's losses, and people genuinely wonder, like, how exactly is that just? There are a number of people who take on irresponsible debt. They go beyond their means, and then they, oh, all I have to do is file bankruptcy. Well, you're ripping off the creditors, potentially. How is that system just? Or even, if my information is correct, one out of three states here in America still use jail time as a punishment for going in debt. As a, like a civil debt, like credit card debt, home, whatever, home loan, stuff like that. Uh, and then we know for certain that there is jail time for, let's say, if you're ripping off the government, you're not paying your taxes, etc., you go to jail. Uh, those are the options today. But, you know, God, back then, had chosen that the lowly would not walk the streets and not go to jail to pay off a debt. I mean, back then they had no concept of jail time. Let's say you do something wrong, you pay your debt to society by going to jail for 30 days for stealing a car, GTA, and then oh, you're free. They didn't have that category. You're in jail because you're awaiting basically court date to see if you're, you die. That's what they had. They didn't have like, I go to jail to pay my debt to society. No, they didn't have that. So friends, what do you do if you're in debt? What if you do if you're too poor and you're looking at your child who's going to die because of starvation? I mean, I'd rather sell myself, sell myself to, uh, let's say, the Ng family so that my family would be protected. Let's say I can't pay off the debt. I would rather work for somebody doing what they need done around the home, taking care of whatever it is that they need, that they need done in order to survive. So, friends, while not condoning the slavery that the U.S. took part in, Europe took part in, even Africa itself took part in, uh, you know, some people see that there are clear societal advantages over our own system. Debtors, those who are poor, they breathe God's air. They walk around freely. 
So how was the nation of Israel to be compassionate to their servants? We looked at the background of slavery. Now, how, how exactly are they to be compassionate toward their servants? How are they to deter abuses in authority, too? Because that's a legitimate issue. Turn to chapter 21. Um, we have a bunch of subpoints here. Israel was to protect the slaves' rest. I mean, how? I mean, that, that should be really encouraging if you were a slave. <clears throat> Israel was to protect the slaves' rest on the Sabbath day. Now, these commands come out of the Ten Commandments. Remember, these are explications of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments, in 28, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That is, you are to cease from resting, and that really is following after the Lord of all creation, his pattern. Six days he created, the seventh day he rested. And so in celebrating the Sabbath, in resting, we too acknowledge all that God is. He's the Lord over all creation. He doesn't need us to keep his world going. He's going to do it himself. He rests, so we ought to. Uh, but what is interesting there in chapter 21, it says there that the slave too is to rest. And there once again is this weekly rest. Actually, turn over to 23.12. It says there six days you shall work and, and you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. You see who, who, who is supposed to get uh, their rest? It's not just the master, but it's the slave. And it's also all of the animals, too. They are to rest because they are God's creation. So see, clearly they're supposed to be protecting the slave's rest there. They're also supposed to be protecting the slave's rest on a, on a yearly level. So the seventh year... Uh, 21.1, the verse that I just read there, the six years they're supposed to work, and then the seventh they're supposed to, uh, supposed to let... I'll just go ahead and read it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free. So this rest is actually a freedom. If you buy, buy, take on in this indentured servant, you are supposed to let them go free on the seventh year. It's a rest of freedom. Now, as we mentioned before, uh, we are not under the Sabbath law per se, as in we think that working on a Sunday is absolute sin. Hebrews chapter 4 states that the Sabbath rest is a resting in Christ ultimately. Also, by the way, the New Testament never commands the church to gather on Saturdays. In fact, by the end of the New Testament times, the church was regularly gathering on a Sunday that is the Lord's Day. And history shows in the early church that the, that the church met before dawn on the Lord's day. And then after that, they went on to go to work. Now, those of you who work, don't use this as an excuse to skip church. No, they're actually gathering before dawn and then heading to work afterwards. But this passage here calls us to make sure that if we are employers, so any of you guys who are employers, and you're in charge of, let's say, scheduling, you know, one way you can practically love the people who are under you is by caring for their rest. Ensuring that they have sufficient time off. Oscar's thinking, I love this sermon. <laughs> so you managers, you managers out there, you know, are you checking in to make sure that your employees are well rested physically? Now, now their rest physically is really supposed to point them to a rest from working because they rest in Christ. 
I mean, it's an amazing parallel, isn't it? Those of you who feel this anxiety, let's say you're so tempted to work every single day of the week, which, you know, frankly, I am, and that's a, a sinful anxiety. That really is a picture of what it looks like to rest, to take off a day. It's really what, a picture of what it looks like to rest in Jesus. Because that same anxiety may be directed towards earning one's salvation. I just need to get in good with God. Maybe I even know how to, maybe I can even do that in work. But here it says, no, you rest from even working for your salvation, as if that's even a real category, and you find rest in Jesus. That's what the ultimate rest is that we need. It is a spiritual rest in Jesus. So again, if you are in charge of scheduling, or maybe one day you own a business, wouldn't it be awesome if you were to say, look, we're just going to close down the business on Sundays, give you rest. But really, friends, what I want you to do is find rest in Jesus Christ. Those of you who are entrepreneurs, think about that. Second, Israel was to protect the state of the slave. Israel was supposed to protect the state of the slave. This is in 21, 3 to 4. 21, 3 to 4. You see there that if someone were to sell themselves into slavery and become your indentured servant, they were to leave just as they came in. Three scenarios. First scenario, you scan those verses. If you come in single, you are to leave single. Second scenario, if you come in married, you are to leave married. So which means masters, uh, God wants to protect from abuses of authority. Masters can't take wives. They can't just steal them. You come and marry, you leave married. Third scenario, it's a little bit more tricky. Verse 24, what if the servant wants to marry a fellow servant, a female servant of the master? What do you do there? In Israelite culture, there, were, there was no dowry, which is present around the world in many different societies where a family gives along with the bride possessions, money, property uh, to the groom in marriage. Here is the opposite. The man is supposed to pay a bride price. A bride price. But what does a servant do if he can't afford a bride price? He's an indentured servant because he's poor, right? He doesn't have money or he has debt, which means he owes money. So what do you do if, if uh, you can't afford a bride price? Well, what was to happen was that if they were to get married and then the, then the male slave's uh, indentured servitude time was over, he would leave. But the, the master would go on and have the female servant and the children stay in his household. So that, here's the deal, so that the servant could either wait for the contract to be over, obligation is done, and then the wife and the children are free, and then they can get married. Or he can go and get a job, let's say as a hired worker, a day worker, and then go and pay their redemption price, the bride price. Or more realistically, in the very next verse there, he could say, I love my master, I love my wife and my children, I will not go out free. The servant could pledge his allegiance to his master and then formally and legally become part of the master's family. And they have this ceremony where he, the guy gets an earring um, to designate that he has now entered into his family as a permanent, uh, permanent, permanent bond servant. So that's what was to happen. They were to protect the state. Third, Israel was to be concerned that their servants be part of a family. Israel was to be concerned that their servants be part of a family. <clears throat> We just saw that in relation to the male servants, where they are joining the family. Uh, but this is seen especially with female servants. <clears throat> Looking 21.7 to 11. 21.7 They were supposed to enter into the family actually with expectations of becoming a bride. So imagine being near death, not having any money to survive. And then all of a sudden, now, they're, now they have expectations of becoming somebody's bride, being brought into a family. So if a family knew that their daughter could be taken care of by another, he could take the bride price and sell her. 
Once again, friends, think poverty, think debt that cannot be paid unless you figure out some way to pay it off. But look there in verse 7. What is on their mind? That she's not to be treated as a male servant because there's greater responsibility to bring her into the family and protect her, it seems. Verse 8 makes it explicit that what is of concern is that she be redeemed. And then it goes further. What is specific is in verse 8 is that the master has no right to sell her to a foreign people if he breaks her contract. That's not allowed. It's there to protect abuses, remember. There to provide provision, protection. And then in verse 9, it's almost an expectation that she would have an arranged marriage with the master or the master's son. And if it is to the son, then she'd be considered the master's very own daughter. So, the, so here's the poor girl on the verge of survival. She goes from almost dying to no real covering over her to then being adopted into a family and then have the potential of having a family of her own. Fourth, masters were to know that there were strict consequences for harsh treatment of slaves. Again, we're just trying to make a case that here they're supposed to be compassionate <clears throat> to the people uh, under their care. It's obvious that there was not to be an abuse of authority, and if there was, by law, the master was to lose his servant, the servant would go free, or even the master's life was to be taken. Exodus 20, 26 and 27, look there. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, she, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, we're going to speak more about this a little bit later, but here we see that Israel was to protect the servant's humanity. They were to protect the servant's humanity. It's not even about the eye. It's not even about the tooth. Because here, they're supposed to, their whole being is supposed to go free. It's about protecting the humanity of the lowly. You look over to 21, verses 20 to 21. 21 verses 20 to 21. Uh, here this uh, protecting justice in some circumstances meant that the master had to lose his life. Now, by the way, this is a major area of, uh, of difference between, let's say, Israel's case law and, let's say, the case law of the Code of Hammurabi, the 18th century B.C. Uh, leader. In the Code of Hammurabi, there were clear distinctions between, let's say, an aristocrat to a regular free man to a slave. And if you transgressed the law and went against an aristocrat or a free man or a slave, there were different types of punishments you had to pay. They weren't after guarding the humanity of the individual. But here you see that it's not, everybody's raised to the same exact place, whether master or slave. Look there, 20, 21 verses 20 and 21. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged, as in blood. But if the slave survives a day or two, he shall not be avenged, for the slave is his money. Basically saying that there's no redemption price to be made because it is his slave. And, and this is case law, remember, where all of the judges were exercising uh, their wisdom, God-given wisdom among the people. So presumably, they're supposed to bring specific situations to the judges and modify, combine other laws. Um, that's what's assumed here. So these case laws legislated in the nation of Israel made it very clear that Israel was to care for the bond servants among them. They are not to be overworked. Uh, their state is to be protected. They are to be brought into families where appropriate, and the master is warned that harsh treatment has serious consequences. Okay, so those are slaves as one category of the lowly, the needy, the disadvantaged. Not only were they part of the need, but so were sojourners, or in other words, the alien, the foreigner. So we're widows and orphans. So look at 22, verse 21. 
22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He goes on, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. It's interesting, the, 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 the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan, this is the first time that you see all three of those terms used. It's going to be a huge theme as you go throughout the Old Testament as God protects the disadvantaged. So this is not an exhaustive list of who the needy are. This, this really works as a summary. They represent all of the disadvantaged, the downtrodden, downtrodden, the defenseless, which can include you know, those who might have physical disabilities, mental disabilities. There's a strong emphasis here on, in relation to how exactly Israel was to care for the disadvantaged, there's a strong emphasis on God's requirement that the covenant community join together to care for the disadvantaged among them. And what's the reason? You look there in verse 21. It says, you too were sojourners. So their experience as sojourners in the land of Egypt, not having a home, suffering, was to inform the way that they went about serving and loving other people, protecting them even. And then, and then uh, it's, it's rooted, their protection of other people is supposed to be rooted in the Exodus. And then you look there at verses 23 and 24. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. You see how heinous it is to not have, for them to not have compassion on those who suffer? Because they were the very ones who suffered, and they were the very ones who cried out to God in, in chapter 2, and then God heard their cry and answered them by coming to judge pharaoh and the egyptians for them to turn around and do the same hostility against other people made in the image of god here god says i pay attention and my wrath will burn it's almost like the servant who is forgiven of his debt in the new testament he goes out after having been forgiven of his debts by this master he goes out and then exacts vengeance and revenge and, and, and interest and he claims all of his money with no kindness and no grace and no mercy against another person who owes him. He doesn't even understand the grace of God and the mercy of God here. Shows that he completely is apart from God. Well, just as Israel cried out to God and God heard and acted to deliver the oppressed, so he will do the same to those who cry out to him. These are covenant curses laid upon God's people that they might love in ways that are very different than the other nations. The poor, too, we can consider the poor. They, too, are considered the defenseless. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we know that the harvesters, so let's say if this half of the room, you guys were harvesters, you, you owned property, you owned plants and stuff like that, and this half were the poor, well, what you guys were to do is you were supposed to leave the edges or even the corners um, of your fields unharvested in order that the poor could come and get the food, uh, which is great. You know, you see this in the book of Ruth. Uh, we know, too, that six years they were supposed to do, on the sixth year, well, sorry, six years they were supposed to harvest. On the seventh year they were to plant but not harvest. Well, why is that? Because that year all of the poor could come and the sojourners among them could be fed. So here God is, uh, he's legislating the care of the poor. You also see in 22, 25 to 27, the Israelites there who had money were not to exact interest from, from those that they lended money to. So here God desires that his people show compassion to the needy. Okay, so what does all this have to do with us today? Because that's case law for then. 
What does that have to do with us today? Well, I imagine that Israel, having been slaves themselves, I, I hope that they would have delighted in serving the underprivileged. That they would have delighted in serving the disadvantaged because they were the disadvantaged. For us today, this passage calls us to pray for hearts of compassion and have hearts of compassion toward the needy. In many ways, we friends, we Christians are like Israel's harvesters. In the sense that God has given us things and he causes them to grow. We don't do things ultimately to make them grow. And sometimes God calls us to see the things that we have. He calls us to see them go away, to benefit other people. And in fact, God calls us to work in order to have something to give away. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, there's a purpose statement, so that uh, he may have something to share with anyone in need. There's the goodness of laboring and working with our hands that God himself has given us so that we might share with other people in need. Of course, the problem, if you guys are like me, in our past, perhaps, maybe even the present, problem is that many times we think that we are the ones who deserve the blessings that God gives us. We are the ones who think that we own them. And so therefore it's hard to give away. It really reveals how selfish we are. We don't see the stuff and the energy, even the breath we have as God-given stuff in order to be good stewards of, to bless others, to see other people benefit from as well. Friends, caring for the needy is characteristic of the Lord himself who gave of his very own self that we needy sinners would be secure. And when God saves us, he saves us into a covenant community. He saves us into a church where we are to know more and more of this safety and care as the church goes on and helps one another. So the question is, how are you helping others in this covenant community? How are you showing compassion to the needy in the covenant community? You know, there's so many ways that you can go about showing compassion, different ways. You know, you can uh, meet a spiritual need and simply pray for people. I shouldn't say simply there because it conveys that uh, that is all you can do. But no, it's something very simple that you can do, which has the greatest of effect. So you can, if you're a member of the church, you can ask uh, Oscar for a church directory. We can get you one of those. So you can be praying through them regularly, praying for a page a day. And bringing the needs of others to God himself, our common father. And say, look, father, this is what our brother and sister needs. I mean, would not God the father rejoice in seeing the, 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 uh, that son or that daughter come before him on the needs of other people? You can meet a physical need. Just, you, know, you can just look around and think about who needs help. Physical help, even. And if you need some ideas, you can talk to David. A couple weeks ago, he taught on a class in relation to service. You can talk to David, you can talk to me about ways in which that you can practically help serve other people and meet the, the, the needs of the needy. What about helping the needy in your community? Now, there's a thousand different ways that you can seek to be compa- compassionate towards the disadvantaged, towards those in our neighborhoods. And the church definitely needs a lot of wisdom and creativity to do this. But I hope, friends, that you are excited to brainstorm about showing love and compassion. I mean, that should be an exciting thing because you've got to sit down and strategize and be aggressive on how to do good to other people. Let me encourage you guys to get together, think of various ideas, ones that are most sustainable, ones that have long-term impact, 
uh, one that, that where the church can get involved, and then let's talk about what it might look like to actually do this. So for a church as small as ours, I think that one of the best things to do is to go on and piggyback on what other things, other people are doing in the community, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't really matter. Let's say people want to clean up Shabon Park. That would be a great thing for us to, to join together and do, and piggyback, join with them, and we can actually bring a, a Christian presence to this. There's other things, too. Great things that we can do. I remember Jesse and some others a while ago, they went to go see an organization about how our church might be able to help refugees that are being displaced, and now they're being relocated to Los Angeles, to the Orange County area. Right, so these organizations, they already have infrastructure. They already have money. They already got support. And so now we can come alongside them and figure out how exactly we can try and help them. Um, in the Lord's providence, uh, for that, at least, uh, opportunity, I, mean, I think it would be great for us to continue to pursue that. Uh, things didn't work out there, but great thing to continue pursuing. One option, very practically, to serve the disadvantaged. Um, this Saturday, I've been invited to Options Pregnancy Center in La Puente. And this Saturday, for dinner, they're giving, uh, they want to just have uh, us over, me and anybody I want to invite, which is the whole entire church, for a free dinner and for discussion to hear what they're doing as they help people... Um, who might not know really that there are options other than abortion. I mean, what a wonderful thing. So not only do you get to help the moms, you get to help the babies. It's a great thing to do. And so me, Mel, and our children too plan on going to this thing on Saturday and to hear what they do, have some fellowship over a meal. They are a, from what I know, the director is a Christian woman and they have other churches who are supporting. We in the past have supported them too. So now it'd be good to reconnect with them. So that's one option there. So think about this Saturday. If you want more information, come talk to me, please. Um, and if you have an idea, friends, bounce it off of others. Bounce it off of me. God wants us as his people, God's holy people, to be eager to do good. Both those, both those inside the community and then those outside. Uh, by the way, a great resource in helping us all understand the best way to go about helping the needy is a book called Toxic Charity. Toxic Charity. You can go ahead and write that down. Look it up on Amazon. Uh, it helps readers understand the nuances of how to best serve the needy and so truly uh, see long-term results and strategies be implemented and long-term results seen. As opposed to wasting resources, let's say by, by, uh, by giving people, all, all you're going to do is just give them money. Every time you see them, you're just going to give money, 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 money. Um, that, friends, can actually strip somebody of their humanity. It strips somebody of their responsibility. God has given them hands to hands where we are to work. And actually, in some instances, we then become enablers and not helpers. And so this book talks about, gives plenty of examples how charity, if you're not thinking well about it, can actually work to strip people of their humanity and their responsibility as their people made in the image of God. Great, wonderful book. And it also gives ways forward too. So in talking about helping others, you know, the best place to start uh, in terms of doing good and showing compassion is to those around you. Now, if you're only brainstorming about what the government can do in Washington, D.C., as they help other countries in the world, but you're not doing it to people all around you, friends, I think something's wrong with your spirituality. God has placed the needy all around us, here even in this community, the sick, the poor. And here we have wonderful opportunities to come around side of these folks and serve them. And be mindful as well um, that the best way that you can love someone is by pointing those people to the spiritual food of the gospel. God forbid that we would simply give them dollars while they are on the path to hell. 
And we never say, look, friends, Jesus Christ gave up all of his riches to become poor, to see that you too, friends, could become rich, not physically rich, not monetarily rich, but rich with every spiritual blessing in heaven. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself to to be a non-Christian, so you don't follow Jesus, maybe you're checking it out. Christianity is not about morals. So friends, the last thing I want you to do is hear this book about, uh, the sermon about case laws and think that Christianity is all about morals. That would be absolutely wrong. So the conversation about what we as Christians are to do comes after the conversation about who we are as people made in the image of God. And that conversation comes after the conversation that we have been made for God's glory. So you have there that we are made for God's glory. You then have that we are made in the image of God in order to display God's glory. And then you have, finally, here's what you are to do, friends. So it would be wrong for you, friends, if you know yourself not to be a Christian, to jump to what you are to do and think, yeah, I love this holiness, this Christian stuff, but I don't love Jesus. That's not Christianity. There's so many different reasons why you could love morality. You could love morality because your family loves morality. And you don't want to have a bad name in front of your family. Then you you go and become the most righteous person you could. At least how they describe righteousness. You could just simply... I was talking with one brother uh, recently and he just just, uh, wanted a certain type of righteousness because he didn't like the effects of sin. It wasn't convenient for him. It wasn't good for furthering his own name in the public. And so, what does he do? He pursues some sort of righteousness, but that's not Christianity. Unless that righteousness is tied to Jesus Christ, who gives his righteousness for the unrighteous. That, friends, is the beauty of Christian morality. We can't do it. We look at this case law, we look at the laws later on, the Ten Commandments that Jesus encourages us, we look at all the laws that Christ uh, lays on top of his people. We are to not even lust, forget about killing people, we're not supposed to lust. Or sorry, uh, forget about committing adultery. We're not supposed to lust. Forget about killing people. We're not supposed to have hatred. And we think, we can't do this. And then the beauty is that we turn to the righteous one who did accomplish all of the righteous laws. Jesus, the righteous one. And in him, in Jesus Christ, we then are considered, we are counted righteous before him. That's the beauty of the gospel. Where we had disobeyed God, the one who made us. Where we, had, where we had all of these responsibilities made in the image of God, where we had thrown them off. We had sinned against God and earned for ourselves just condemnation. Well, and then when we have actually transgressed the law of God, nevertheless, God reaches out to his people just as he did in Exodus, just as he did in Genesis. He reaches out to us and pays the debt that we could not pay. The wonderful thing, friends, is that when we enter into relationship with that master with jesus christ with god our father we are not slaves to be beaten but children to be loved slaves then of his righteous character beautiful you see that christian morality you gotta love christian morality as it's tied to and finds its fulfillment in jesus as the world looks at that and says that is beautiful caring for the compassionate or caring for the disadvantaged with compassion a wonderful, beautiful thing. Caring for the disadvantaged? Awesome thing. Let's move on. While God cares about the disadvantaged, He also cares about all of life. He cares about all of life. Chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. We got a long list here of capital crimes. That is, those crimes that are worthy of the death penalty. And we already saw that if a slave was killed by his master, there, capital uh, capital punishment was to be implemented. 
But there's a whole list of other uh, crimes that would warrant the death penalty. Look there at 16. Um, give me one second. Actually, let's go back. You see there in verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. <clears throat> that here is talking about premeditated murder. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him. Now, that's this kind of slavery that America took part in. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father and his mother shall be put to death. And then he goes on and says there, verse 22, if men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, look there, verse 23, if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. That is, if you strike a pregnant woman and the baby dies, that too is worthy of the death penalty. Think about this for today. You know, some people think capital punishment just treats life so lightly. Why would governments want to want to legislate the death penalty? Well, friends, the Bible in Genesis chapter 9, way before any kind of case law is given, implements, God himself implements the death penalty. Because there is such high value of life. Genesis chapter 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Whoever takes a life as in murder is different than killing in war. Genesis 9, 6 says that life should be taken. And the whole reason, again, why God demands that such life be taken is because God made man in his own image. Men and women are precious because they are made in the image of God, designed to be little kings, exercising God's care and provision over the earth and even over others. But in murdering others, the individual throws off the responsibilities that come with being made in the image of God instead of providing for, instead of protecting life. You take the life that God himself has created. See how evil that is? Going not only against other people, but going against the God who made us. The reason why the punishment is so great is because the crime is that heinous. Taking someone's life is that serious. What we see in Exodus is simply an affirmation that's already given us in, in Genesis chapter 9. And notice who this law pertains to, friends. It's not just males, not just women, but, but not just uh, masters, but also slaves. Not just adults, but also babies. It is all of life. Now, we see here that God cares about all of life, and we should too. So, right now, I'm not arguing uh, that we need all of us to hold to the death penalty today. I'm not arguing that we should work towards legislating that in our own state. I am, though, arguing that if Christians are going to care about others in the way that God wants us to, and be a holy nation in front of the whole entire world so that they see God's beautiful character, we need to care about all of life that's made in the image of God. When we see that men and women are made in the image of God, we will be drawn to helping the downtrodden. If we care that all people are made in the image of God, we will want to see babies protected. The helpless of the helpless. If we understand that every human being, including the physically handicapped, the mentally handicapped, uh, are made in the image of God, we will want to love them and provide for them. We will want to hate racism. 
We will want to banish favoritism or favoriting whether it be the poor or the rich. We will be disgusted with pornography. We will want to see the eradication of the sex slave trade. If we understand that every single person here is made in the image of God, and everybody in the world is as well, we will go on and fight for them. That's the beauty of Christian morality. How can you not see the beauty of Christian morality when you look over here and you see a Muslim person who rejects Jesus and says, you might reject Jesus, but I am going to fight for your life because you are made in the image of God. You might hate me and want to kill me, but I'm going to fight for you because you two are made in the image of God. The greatest way that we can fight for them too is by giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ, which shows them how true huma- what true humanity is and how we are to live. But once again, friends, if you don't know people who might be involved in some of these things, and you're thinking, yes, that's what it looks like to fight for those made in the image of God, but you aren't nice to the Starbucks barista who's serving you, who's also made in the image of God, the person who serves you at a restaurant, you're not kind and taking interest in them. Something I think is wrong with your spirituality here. God wants us to live and love like God and all of his, the beauty of his holiness and righteousness before everybody in front of us. And so display his beautiful character to everybody. In that sense, we have to love Christian morality, don't we? Morality that finds its roots and very definitions in God himself. As he's making his people to be a righteous people who love like he does and loves the very things that he does, which includes every single human being on this planet. Now, by the way, where, one, where some people fall into a pitfall is tying to the image of God to what a person does. Tying the image of God, value of a human being, to what somebody does. In other words, if you show favoritism to the rich or a doctor here, maybe a real estate investor impressed by so much money, Oh, or, or how do you value a gardener? How do you value a dishwasher or a truck driver or someone who doesn't have a job, the physically, the mentally handicapped? Friends, they all have equal value and are of equal dignity, not because of what they do, but because of who they are, as Genesis says, that they are made in the image of God. So we want to understand People's value is not ultimately based on what they do, but in who we are, as we are designed to have a very relationship with God. Well, from these laws, it is clear that God cares about all of life. Next, God cares about restitution. God cares about restitution. And restitution means that we restore something that we have caused our neighbors to lose. Uh, 21.33, this is a famous verse, when a man opens a pit, that is when he digs a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. It's a very famous passage. You People wonder, like, what in the world does this mean? Like, how does this apply to us? Digging a pit? I don't dig pits. Uh, or when I do, I don't have an ox. Um, by the way, I was, I was trying to write oxes. When, you're, when the oxes fall into a pit, and the, the Microsoft Word would not get it right. And I finally realized it was oxen. Not oxes. So when oxen fall into a pit, the owner, uh, he shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. And this restoration section goes a very long way 
and all the laws that cover various cases, you know, they address how to make things right. It involves God's people taking responsibility for the difficulty and the harm that they have caused. In my experience, what prevents people from being eager to make restitution is that we're afraid of the cost. Again, it reveals our selfishness. Let's say we borrow something and we destroy it. But man, we don't want to get that person a new DVD or a CD or even fix his bumper. Um, and it's and oftentimes we do this because we're too busy thinking about what it will cost us. It reveals our own selfishness, that we care ultimately about our own selves. As opposed to what our mistake cost them. But part of rest, making restitution means putting the needs of others before your very own and trying to make right on some of the wrongs that we uh, perpetrate against other people. And Jesus applauds Zacchaeus, right? He, uh, Zacchaeus, he goes on and says, like, oh, I will repay everybody I've cheated fourfold. And Jesus, recognizing that this desire of Zacchaeus sprung from truth or true faith, he responds, today salvation has come to this house. Even in my own life, you know, in recognition that I've stolen from people. <clears throat> and so what I did is uh, I went to uh, one of my mentors and I said, oh my goodness, like, uh, as, I became, as I came under conviction that I should put other people's needs in front of my own, even the businesses, uh, some businesses from some of the petty things that I stole, I called up one business and I was like, I was nervous, right? I got to confess, I stole something from this person. I said, look, this is what's going on in my life. I actually am coming to understand the Bible. I'm actually coming to love Jesus. I've stolen from you. I'm going to repay double from what I stole for what I stole. <clears throat> and I, and he told he asked me how much it was, and I told him. And he and he literally was like, ah. Well, he basically said, ah, oh, that's that's not a big deal. He said, dude, you know, he said, I'm great that you're trying to get your. It's great that you're trying to get your life on track. Do you recognize that? Uh, or you know, he kindly said, um, I'm trying to go after theft rings. And he says, I said, okay, you know what? This is what we're going to do. I'm going to call you eventually because our office is moving. And, uh, and and I'll let you know where you can write the check to. And I was like, you sure? No, I can write this to you like right now. I can drive to your office and pay you. He's like, no, 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 I'm sure this is what's going to happen. I'll, I'll call you back, whatever. And he kind of had this sort of whatever mentality. Said, you know, he basically said, don't even worry about it. Um, but there I thought that the, the Lord was honoring my decision to make restitution. That money was harder and I didn't want to give it up. But I thought, no, I want to put these people in front of myself and try and make right. <clears throat> And the Lord, I thought, blessed me with that. And I thought, you know, wow, this is a, a great and wonderful thing to do. And I'm learning to love other people instead of myself. Uh, next, God cares about his glory among his people's enemies. And uh, here is our last point before our conclusion. Turn over to 23, 4, and 5. 23, 4, and 5. Once again, oxen. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it. Basically, for him. Rescue it with him. We see Israel's kindness was not only to be given to those they had a natural affinity to, but to their very enemies which included other nations. Here, their enemies are not only to see God's goodness in character as they observe from afar, but they are to be recipients of God's love and care. The point in this verse is not about oxen or donkeys, nor is it really about the legal system. The point is that they, as God's people, were to love their neighbors, all of them. Just as Jesus comes along and tells the story about the Good Samaritan, whom the Jews, the righteous, self-righteous Jews hated, <clears throat> 
And then he goes on and brings deep conviction to them because they hated them and, and uh, wouldn't even go on to help. But here is this uh, good Samaritan who knows what true love is and regardless of who is before him is able to, to truly love like Jesus loves. Here they're supposed to return the donkey to the enemy because that's how the enemy makes a living. They're supposed to return the, the ox to the donkey that's fallen under its load because that's how he makes his, his uh, living. Point here, once again, is that they are to love their neighbors regardless of what sinful inclination they have. This is how God's people are to behave. Extending themselves to those who even want to hurt them and those who hate them. And here we find fulfillment in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, don't we? The very love he gives to those who hated him. He went to Jerusalem and he knew he would have to suffer at, at his enemy's hands, but yet when considering the hardness of their hearts, Luke 19.41 says that when he drew near and saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. He wept over their hardened hearts against God. That's the beauty again of the character of God. You see the beauty of this holiness? It's the beauty of His holiness. Showing compassion to the needy. Caring about all human beings made in the image of God. Doing right to others. Putting others before ourselves. Caring even for our very own enemies. We see this, all of this is fulfilled in Jesus. And so we see the extension of God's character to the world here today is the church. In this particular area, this is First Baptist Church. This is part of what we stand for, representing God's beautiful character, that we have that Savior, and He is that good, and we love Him, and therefore we want to act like Him. For the sake of His glory, we then pursue holiness. Knowing full well that we cannot be perfect, but in fact, we find perfection in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of everybody who would repent and believe. Christian morality, once again, is not the gospel. But Christian, uh, Christian morality is what is generated in our hearts in the truths of the gospel as we repent and believe and find forgiveness at the cross. If you go about trying to earn salvation under the weight of this law, friend, you will fail. And I'm guessing that your conscience already tells you that. And friends, that's an invitation to re repent of your sin and to believe on this Lord, this holy Lord, this beautiful Lord, who got up from the dead three days later saying that, telling everyone that payment has been made and that you are declared righteous in his sight through the blood of Jesus.